Hello, everyone, and welcome to a very special podcast. Today, we're talking about dementia, specifically dementia care for the health system and everyone involved. My guests today are Dr. Mary Middleman. I have a doctor of public health and psychiatric epidemiology, and I've been doing research on how to help family members and people with dementia for whom they care for the past 30 years. And my name's Diane Meyer. I'm a geriatrician and the director of the Center to Advance Palliative Care, and we are very interested in improving the care that health systems deliver to people living with progressive memory loss and the people who care for them. So I'm really excited for this podcast. I'm obviously flanked um, by two sides of people who are very experienced in talking about dementia care, so thank you for doing this. My first question is sort of a zoomed-out approach. What are the biggest issues that clinicians face uh, in terms of dementia care? What are the biggest challenges we face right now in educating clinicians? I think one of the biggest challenges is that there are no drugs at the moment that will make a significant difference in the trajectory of the illness. And uh, that's very frustrating, I think, for clinicians. And there are interventions that are will help people with dementia and their family members. They are psychosocial interventions. They have a huge and powerful benefit, but they're not as well known. There's no marketing force behind them the way there is behind drugs. So I would second what Mary said and add that... In the earlier stages of dementia, people can chat away and be perfectly socially presentable, and unless you're looking for it, you're not going to notice that there's a problem with memory loss. And just as we're trying to get clinicians to routinely screen for depression, for example, to routinely screen for functional impairment, for example, we need to start routinely screening for memory loss that is impacting daily function. And... That way, we're not going to miss people who are at very high risk and whose family caregivers are noticing more and more issues and feeling alone and helpless with it. I think the idea is to not normalize it, but make it as important as asking if people are wearing seatbelts, just a routine part of clinical practice. How severe is this problem? So when we talk about clinicians missing the signs, missing the symptoms of dementia, from what you've seen across health systems, how big is this problem? I think it's a huge problem. I think more than the, the Alzheimer's Association says more than 50% of people with dementia go undiagnosed. I think the problem exacerbates other illnesses as well, because if the physicians uh, are not aware that the person has dementia, then they may tell him or her what medicines to take at what frequency, and she or he will not necessarily remember, do it correctly, and then as a result of that, the other illnesses for which they are seeing the physician could get much worse. I think that's a key point, that dementia coexists with other major medical comorbidities and chronic diseases, um, and that interventions for those chronic diseases will be directly influenced by the presence of memory loss or cognitive impairment. 
Uh, and so knowing it is critical not only for helping prepare that patient and their family and other caregivers for what is going to lie ahead and to help them plan and make decisions about the future, but also critical for effective management of other medical problems uh, that may require, for example, a great deal more oversight or supervision or more frequent check-ins from somebody on your team than would be necessary in someone who's cognitively intact. We talked a little bit offline uh, before we hit record here, and Mary, you had mentioned something about clinicians not having the time to invest in this kind of care because it takes a lot of time. It's not something that can be fixed with a push of a button or with a drug, as you mentioned. So how do you get around that? How do you navigate those waters? If physicians could be convinced to do a brief memory screen, and if they had access to staff who were expert in counseling family members and the person with the illness on how to move forward, then I think it would be easier. It's not something they can do on their own with all the time pressure that they have, but trained other clinicians in their, in their practice or to whom they have access, such as nurses, nurse practitioners, and social workers, can take the pressure off of them so that they can spend their time on what they feel they're best at. As Mary said earlier, while there are no effective drugs to slow down the course of this disease, there are many effective psychosocial interventions that are sitting there that we clinicians have never heard of and don't know about because there's no pharmaceutical company behind them marketing them and making money on them. And the project we're trying to do is, is trying to close that gap. That is to make it easier for frontline clinicians, doctors' offices, clinics, hospitals, nursing homes, to know that those interventions are there and to locate them in their community so they can connect patients and families to existing resources or can contribute to building access to those effective resources if they don't exist. So it all starts with education, right? So twofold is one recognizing the symptoms, and then two, it's knowing what to do to treat those symptoms. What does poor dementia care look like, meaning no dementia care? What does that look like for a patient, and what can clinicians start to do to to recognize that there's an issue? Well, I, I think some of the consequences is really what it looks like. So they may, if a doctor asked somebody, in, uh, what, where does it hurt? Does it hurt there? Yes. Does it hurt there? Yes. Does it hurt there? Pointing at different, touching different parts. Yes, because that person is being very agreeable. But you don't really know where it hurts because they're hiding the fact that they're not really understanding the question. Or they can, the person can, can say, uh, oh, yeah, I, te- I do all the things you tell me. I take every medicine on time. Well, if they don't know that the person has dementia, then they're not going to understand that that person is really not communicating properly. So their job is going to get harder be- because that person is not really um, any more completely able to take care of himself. And I think convincing the physicians that their job is going, going to be harder with, when they don't recognize dementia is probably one of the key ways to, to change the way the system operates. I would just underscore that by saying that as our healthcare system moves away from paying for volume, fee-for-service, and towards paying for quality and 
efficiency in terms of utilization and cost, it will very much behoove health systems and clinicians working in them to identify people with memory loss because otherwise those people will end up over and over calling 911 in the ED, in the hospital, not because they need to be there, but because there wasn't recognition of these risk factors. Um, earlier, and the data supports that, the cost of dementia care even now, before my generation hits our 80s, when it's going to be a real nightmare, is more than twice as much as the cost of cardiac disease and cancer combined. I don't think people realize that. We think about the cost of cancer care, the cost of um, heart disease care, the cost of dementia care dwarfs that. But I think part of the reason we don't talk about it is because there's no remunerative, profitable drugs that would cause us to do more public education about that. I think another reason we don't talk about it is because we're all so terrified of having this happen to us. So there's a kind of repression denial that's society-wide. If I don't talk about it, if I don't name it, maybe it will go away. And then I think another reason we don't talk about it is this false belief that there's nothing that can be done. And that's really toxic because it's not true. And it, it... it gives this false justification for ignoring it or not looking into it, this belief that why bother? I can't fix this. There's nothing I can do about it. Um, and so what we're really hoping to do is to correct that um, therapeutic nihilism that exists in health systems about memory loss and dementia and say to our colleagues, there's a lot you can do, and it really will make a difference. There are two other m- huge costs to, to dementia due to the illness itself. One of them is the cost to the family caregivers whose own health is often uh, affected by, by being the caregiver of someone with dementia. There are huge mental and physical health effects to family members of being caregivers. So that's one huge additional cost. And estimates say that that's about one-third of the cost of caring for people with dementia is the cost of the to the health of the family members. But the other thing is that while there is an underlying disease process that's causing the dementia, there is what I like to think about as excess disability that isn't due to the disease itself, but due to the other things that can be addressed, such as proper vision, proper dental care, proper hearing, uh, proper exercise, stimulation, f- enjoyable activities, quality of life issues that can be addressed and that can reduce the disability that the dementia itself causes. I want to talk about recognizing symptoms. So what I've learned from palliative care is that even with pain management, you're trying to get a pain story, not just asking someone where does it hurt, right? So when does it hurt? What part of the day? What is it keeping you from doing? How are you sleeping? That kind of thing. So I'd imagine with dementia care, it's a lot about communicating with the patient and recognizing those signs because sometimes a patient may not want to admit that they're feeling this way. You know, what I've seen in my own family members, they don't want to admit, you know, that they, they're forgetting things. They don't want to, to, to let the ego down to be able to say, oh, you know, I forgot. We play along with them so that everyone pretends that no one's uh, forgetting things, right? So for clinicians to start noticing some signals and some symptoms, how can they 
get that information from a patient? And how can they then start recognizing things to be able to treat them? I'm not sure because some some people are really good at hiding, as you yourself point out. I think frequently physicians make the assumption that because a person uh, has a job or because a person is is uh, seems to be coping in everyday life that he or she uh, is cognitively normal. And in the early stages of dementia, uh, people can cope with many aspects of everyday life. The f- the message from the clinician that that normalizes and legitimizes this in the sense that we're interested in your blood pressure, we're interested in your blood sugar, we're interested in your weight and how much exercising you're doing, we're interested in your memory because we want to do everything we can to maximize your continued ability to function and have, have an acceptable quality of life. It's It shouldn't be this highly stigmatized, avoided area, because everyone knows that as we get older, we have what we call senior moments, right? And some of those are normal, and when they get beyond occasional, they're starting to tell you something. And the fact that we clinicians don't ask about it sends a very powerful message to patients and families of stigma, of avoidance, of hopelessness and helplessness, of shame. And we shouldn't be doing that. Well, some of the stigma, I think, is related to the fact that it's sort of paradoxical because we don't recognize dementia in the early stages. What we think of as dementia is the later stages of dementia. And so if we could focus more on what people are able to do especially in the early stages of dementia. I think that might do a lot to reduce the stigma. And in fact, in my own programs, we have created a lot of activities that are public, such as I founded a chorus. Now there are two choruses in New York City that are for people with dementia with their family members. And very frequently when I go to their concerts, people will say to me, which of those people have dementia? And while I wish they wouldn't ask, I think it's very telling that they do ask. Well, the first chorus I founded in 2011 called themselves the Unforgettables. (laughs) (laughs) And they they have 13 rehearsals for every concert. And what's wonderful, I started it for the family caregivers, but in fact what we didn't expect and we're now happy to report is that people with dementia learn about 18 new songs for every concert. Family members come, community members come, and you're seeing what is possible with dementia as opposed to what the dementia is going to prevent. I want to step back for a second. If I'm a eager clinician who hears this and says, I want to start getting better. I want to start asking my patients questions. I want to start, you know, getting to the bottom of this and recognizing some symptoms. They start asking questions, what are they looking for? So what are some of the signs of early dementia? And, you know, what are some things that you can recognize through these questions to be able to then get better? Because the first piece is understanding what to look for, right? So for me as a geriatrician, if I asked a patient, are you, and I did ask this routinely, are you having problems with your memory? Everyone said yes. If somebody asked me that question, I'd say yes, right? So then I ask about what what things have you been experiencing that you think are related to that. So I'll say 
For example, have you ever left the stove on? Have you ever forgotten to turn off the stove? Um, have you missed any appointments? Have you had more trouble balancing your checkbooks or paying your bills? Because that's a very early sign of high-level cognitive function declining is real stress on finances. And that's where you, you get the distinction between somebody who can't remember someone's name but is functioning just fine and balancing their checkbook and keeping up with their bills and writes down their appointments and gets there and turns the stove off versus someone who is moving into a zone where it's really important to know what's going on and figure out, A, what elements of it can be compensated for, and B, what supports that person and their family might need. And once we collect that kind of information, how do we then move to a official diagnosis to be able to then start working on these targeted therapies? Well, uh, the Alzheimer's Association has really clear guidance on, you know, what's mild cognitive impairment, MCI, versus what's actual dementia and what the characteristics of vascular dementia or multi-infarct dementia are versus other forms of dementia, which are primary degenerative brain diseases. And clinicians need to know that because there are therapeutic implications for those different causes of dementia. But the first step is, is to do a formal, validated assessment of memory, and there are several uh, that are available. And then uh, to make a decision as to whether it's worth sending this person for full neuropsychological testing, um, which is an expensive, long evaluation, and there's no way as a society we can afford to pay for that for every single person with memory loss. Um, but for some people, uh, particularly if you're an in an organization that has research programs, that, that is, a, is a resource that's available. If you're not going to refer people for that, I really do think that's the point at which there's a process of, A, disclosing to the patient and the family that they have this diagnosis and helping both, both entities, the family and other caregivers and the patient, process that because there will be grief, there will be anxiety, there will be sadness, there will be anger, there will be denial, and people have to, you, we the clinicians have to live with that just as if we tell someone they have cancer. It's devastating and people have to process it and then they move through that processing to a point of, okay, now what? And that's the point at which people are ready to hear, now what? And the now what, depending on the stage of the dementia, depending on the capacity of the family caregiver, resources, cognition, are they working full-time, do they have three little kids in the home, understanding the reality of the context of the patient and the family then guides the types of resources that might be necessary. So, for example, if you're talking to someone who is probably Medicaid-eligible but no one's applied for Medicaid and that they could have help at home through Medicaid, it would be really important to connect them with social work, to apply for the Medicaid, to get the resources to support that family. If, on the other hand, you're talking to people who have adequate resources, it's to kind of make sure that they know that what they need is unlikely to be covered by health insurance. And most patients don't realize that. They think Medicare will cover AIDS in the home. It will not. Um, and helping people plan for the future. 
which is financial, emotional, safety, family and community supports, and advanced care planning. So you want to ask people what's most important to them while they can still tell you. I think it's interesting when you get to that now what moment, right? Because I think then the patient and the caregiver start asking the questions, I think, right? What can I expect? How fast is this going to happen? And obviously in every situation it's different. So how can the clinician help a patient and their their families prepare for what's ahead when what's ahead is uncertain? And and we don't know how long it might uh, take for for, uh, the illness to progress. I think we have to prepare people for the possibility that they'll be spending many, many years in a relatively functional state, especially if they have the proper supports. So people can function quite well if the, if the environment around them is set up in a way that supports that. There's a place in, in Belgium, in the town of Bruges, they have developed a, a, a town-wide sensitivity to the needs of people with dementia. And they have a pink kerchief with a knot in it as a symbol of fr- dementia-friendly. And storekeepers are, who are trained in how to interact with people with dementia put that uh, a, a decal in their window with a, with a knotted handkerchief. And so people with dementia can know that they can walk in there, and if they can't remember how to make change or they forgot what they came in for, the people in the store are, are willing and eager to be helpful. And so I think it's not just about the family. I think it's about the community as well, mm-hmm. that we that the police in the community should understand when someone's wandering around looking like they don't know where they're going, they might have dementia. And I think we could learn a lot, actually, from the city of Bruges on how to be dementia-friendly. That's incredible. But also I think it will. Uh, the, we, we have to fight the stigma, and I think every di- everything we do to help people with dementia live a fuller life is a way to fight the stigma. There could be many years at the end of the illness in which the person is incapable of doing anything for himself. But it isn't going to be tomorrow if you make the diagnosis today. I, I, I do want to add to Mary's really important point that this is not a physician or health system's sole responsibility. And that, of course, the great majority of time that a dementia patient and their family spend is neither in our offices nor our hospitals nor our nursing homes. They're in the community. So of course it's a community-wide both experience and opportunity to improve things. But I do want to underscore the power of the relationship with the clinician to the patient and the family feeling like they still belong in the fold that they're still part of the human family. There is a, it's almost a religious or spiritual element to the relationship of patients and families to doctors or their primary clinicians, whoever they are. And if we signal helplessness, hopelessness, and disinterest, because it's hard for us to be with people who have memory loss and cognitive impairment, we do a huge amount of harm to our patients and our families. And we have to remember that our role is not just technical. Our role is very relational. And the signal that 
I'm committed to you and will walk with you come what may for the hopefully God willing the next 20 years because I'll be alive then too <laughs> um, is powerfully comforting and healing no matter what the diagnosis is and I just want to underscore that unconsciously our own avoidance, because we don't know what to do, because we feel helpless, because we're scared of developing this ourselves, is causes harm, unconscious harm. And that I think it's so important for clinicians to lean in and not lean away when people have diagnoses that we don't have a fix for whatever it is. Most things eventually don't have a fix. Um, and then the fix is the relationship. What does good dementia care look like? What does it look like when a patient and their family members or their, the members of their community um, understand the illness and are able to move forward? So I think the success stories that I can describe are the ones where, as Mary pointed out, the resources in the community are identified and mobilized because the patient, the person with dementia, becomes very socially isolated, and so does their caregiver, their family caregiver. It's embarrassing for both. And there are ways to compensate for that. So a story that I often tell is of a patient and a family uh, or a spouse that I was involved in the care of, um, where they were totally socially isolated, both because... They, the husband with the cognitive impairment was unable because of back pain was decreasingly mobile, so they stopped going to church, which was their main social environment. And the spouse, the wife, who had many friends, could not leave her husband alone to be with her friends uh, because he got very agitated if if she left him, and the result was a very physically, socially, and emotionally isolated environment that was leading to very high 911 call utilization um, and repeated hospitalizations that were unnecessary. The intervention was contacting the church, and of course they had a friendly visitor program, and mobilizing most faith communities have friendly visitor programs for their shut-ins and mobilizing that. So now there are friendly visitors three times a week. Uh, high school students, two of the days, and a member of the congregation on the third day. The church sends a car to pick them both up for services on Sunday, gives them lunch with other people, and sends them home. And when the, the friendly visitors are there, the spouse goes out. She can see her friends, she can go shopping, she can get her hair done, she can walk in the park. And they're both still managing at home. So it wasn't because of a drug we prescribed. Um, it, it was because of some home safety adjustments that were made, grab bars, elevated toilet seat, one of those chairs that you push a button and it helps you stand up, trivial interventions that made a huge difference, Meals on Wheels, um, but mainly social support that was sitting right there that had not, no one had thought of it, hadn't been mobilized. Um, and yet that's the key for the social and emotional well-being and function of this couple. We have to partner with our colleagues in the community, whether it's faith communities or other service organizations, and it is our responsibility to identify those resources and connect our patients and their families to them. To elaborate a little bit on the caregiver side of things, I just wanted to make sure that we do discuss 
caregiver burnout and the issues that are involved with helping a patient with dementia at home, and let's say it's just a spouse or it's a, you know, a couple family members, that's a very taxing job, especially if you have your own job, you have your own life and your own things you're dealing with. How can a clinician help a caregiver from the, the beginning get a grasp on, on this task and, and move forward with confidence? Sometimes the clinician of the caregiver is not the same as the clinician who's seeing the person with dementia. I have this fantasy that every clinician would ask a person who seems to be a little bit distressed, are you a caregiver of somebody with dementia? And if the answer is yes, to help them to find supports for themselves, to tell them to know that there are supports out there, there are ways in which they can alleviate what could turn into burnout before it gets that far. There, in every community, there are the Alzheimer's Association has support groups. There are other ways in which people can connect to other people who will understand them, help them think through what's what's going on, and how they can reduce the probability of burnout. Burnout doesn't happen on day one. Burnout is the the bad end to a process in which people become more and more overwhelmed and exhausted. So what we need to do is figure out how to how to find them when it's starting. And it's the caregiver's physician who really needs to pay attention, as well as the physician of the person with dementia. So the only intervention that makes sense and which has been proven with research to work is social support of various kinds. And we have an obligation as healthcare organizations and healthcare professionals to make that connection for our patients and their families. Excellent. And Mary, your program is incredible in what it's able to accomplish. It's, it's got a high mission, and it covers a lot of bases. But what's your elevator pitch about your program and how it's helping? We have had a very successful intervention that, that has been used around the country and elsewhere uh, that helps family caregivers. So knowing that it's been helpful and we have the evidence base, I thought it was really imperative that we develop training for social service providers. And we now have online training so that social service providers can learn how to do what has been helpful to, to families. The core of what the NYU caregiver intervention is involving other family members in a productive way to help the family caregiver and the person with dementia. So that, that, those training materials are now available. And then we started thinking about how do we reach more family members, and Diane said, what about the person in Peoria, Illinois? So we thought it was really important to create video conferencing versions of what we know is effective. So we are now actually doing a randomized control trial of a video conferencing version of the intervention where everybody can be in a different place and participate using the power of the computer. So that's one whole thread. But the other thread is, so we have all kinds of outcomes uh, of the, our interventions that are really powerful. But the one that seems to have convinced at least New York State of the value of what we do was a paper we published in Health Affairs in 2014 about the many millions of dollars that could be saved for the government if an intervention like the NYU caregiver intervention were available 
So New York State, with that information, set up 10 family support programs. I think it's unique in the world where the entire state, uh, every caregiver in the state now has access to a family support program. And we're running one, and I'm using the opportunity of having the social services available through the funding of the state of New York to provide established interventions, but also to try new ones. And there are many things that seem to be appealing. We have another chorus. We are starting a music ensemble for musicians with dementia. We have a buddy program in which young people in the schools of NYU, starting with the nursing school, then the medical school, now we're going to have the music school involved. The young people will be buddies with people in the early stage of dementia. And those People with dementia are teachers to the young people. And I think it's really important that we spread the word about how people can function well with dementia and that all of the things that are still possible, that we have some incredible artists that we discovered because they are in an art workshop. And, and we, have, we have musicians who are eager to perform in front of an audience. And so we're trying to figure out how can we help these people to do what they do well, even better, and to provide uh, and, and to provide the community with a message. I think that these people are really the forefront and messengers of what is possible. It's not to say that dementia is fun. It's, it's, it's a devastating illness. But I think we have to shift from the medical model of fixing what's broke to a, a more comprehensive model of living as best possible. Mary and Diane, thank you so much for doing this today, and thank you so much for what you're doing for clinicians, for patients and families dealing with this illness. Thank you for being here today. Thank you.